Uh, what are the most important questions you want answered? Uh, Alex asked a few, didn't she? Why, are, why is the sky blue? I remember that was one of Daniel's questions growing up. Um, what happens if the Queen runs out of money? Like, they're big questions, aren't they? But sometimes the important questions seem to be, what's for dinner? That's like the urgent question, isn't it? Or what am I going to cook for dinner? That's <laughs> um, what's the weather going to do today? That's a fairly important question. Which shirt should I wear? Uh, I asked Google. What's the most common question asked on Google in 2021? <laughs> Symptoms of COVID. No, what to watch on TV. It's a bit sad, isn't it? Uh, let's assume that's the most common question rather than the most important question. I hope it's only the most, most common question. But perhaps some of these questions are, are very important for people. What should I buy next? Should I accept that job offer? Do people like me? Will you marry me? I guess in lots of ways they're perhaps superficial, maybe not the will you marry me one, but they're temporary. Uh, but I guess if we're thinking about it, the really big questions of life are the ones that have, people have been asking for thousands of years. Who am I? What am I here for? What is life all about? <coughs> now they're they're big questions, aren't they? That, that's what we all want to know, whatever our culture, whatever our language, whatever our age we live in. But who better to ask than Jesus? The master teacher, the most fulfilled human being, human life ever lived. But of course, more than that, he's God himself, uh, the one with the wisdom of eternity who created us and created the world we live in. Who better to ask those big questions of than Jesus? Well, today we have that chance. Mark chapter 12, we're standing with the crowd in the temple, we're listening as Jesus teaches, as people ask questions about God and life and death. Big questions. There's a war of words between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. There's questions and accusations and answers. But through all of that, we actually learn the answer to four of, I think, life's great questions. So grab a pen, take some notes. Uh, the chapter begins with Jesus telling a familiar story, a man planted a vineyard. Now, straight away, uh, the Jewish listeners would say, great, he's quoting Isaiah chapter 5. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, the man represents God. The vineyard is Israel. The beginning's the same, but from this point, Jesus jumps off uh, and adds some original detail because the owner leaves some tenants in charge. They represent the leaders of Israel who are supposed to look after the vineyard so that it produces fruit. But we already know they're not doing that. Do you remember last week, the fig tree with no fruit? The land looked religious, but there was no godliness and no righteousness. And so verse 3, when the owner sends a servant to collect the crop from the tenants, instead the tenants beat him up. And the next one, and then the third one they kill. Jesus is talking about the prophets sent from God to call the people back to repentance. And Israel's history is just full of rejection of the prophets. And then verse 6, finally the owner sends a son he loves. Of course, Jesus is talking about himself. But they kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. Jesus knows that's his fate. But verse 9, the owner will deliver justice. He'll bring death on the murderous tenants 
and then he'll give the vineyard to others. Jesus is describing the new age following his death and resurrection when God's vineyard will be swept clean and there'll be others in charge and there'll be Gentiles and non-Jews who are now part of this vineyard. But the parable doesn't just predict what will happen, it's actually the agent that brings it about. It instigates, it's, it, it's, a, it's a catalyst that begins to cause what it's foretelling. It produces the effect it's describing, Jesus' rejection. You see that, verse 12, the leaders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he'd spoken the parable against them. They're afraid of the crowd, so they skulk away to regroup. Jesus has won the first round, but there's plenty left in this contest. Verse 13, round two begins. The first of a series of questions, each designed to trap Jesus. First question, it comes from the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, Probably, I think, they gave opposite answers to the question. There are the religious purists on one hand, the Pharisees, who probably say, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar. And then you've got the political power brokers, the Herodians on the other, and I'm wondering whether they're saying, yeah, pay taxes to Caesar. They're opposite in lots of ways, but they're united in their fear of Jesus and in trying to trick him. So the question, verse 14, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Now, this is a much bigger question than simply about taxes. There is probably no more important or fundamental question when you stop and think about it. Who should I serve? Who should I listen to? Whose rules determine the way I live? Where does my loyalty lie? It was a tricky question in the context for Jesus. Either way, he's in trouble. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, then he could be arrested for treason against the Romans. But if he said, yes, pay taxes, then he's flying in the face of public opinion because the Jews hated every coin that came out of their pocket and ended up in Caesar's. But look at what Jesus answers. The end of verse 15, he asks for a coin and then he asks whose portrait is on it. Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. His point is, firstly, that if Caesar owns the coins, if Caesar builds the roads, if Caesar keeps the peace and his citizens benefit from that, then they have a responsibility under God to support him, to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, what is his due. But that doesn't mean he owes everything. Everything is owed to him. It's not an absolute allegiance to Caesar. Because Jesus also adds, give to God what belongs to God's. You see, Christians owe two loyalties. God deserves our ultimate allegiance, our worship. It's his kingdom we are truly a part of. And Rome, or whatever country we live in, is, is, is all part of God's kingdom. Now, that's the same for us today. That hasn't changed. We are citizens of Australia. We have a responsibility to pay taxes, to vote, to obey the rules of the land or on a smaller scale as an employee you have a responsibility to your employer as a member of a family you have a responsibility to your family a partner in a marriage you have a responsibility to the marriage you're a member of a team you're a member of a church 
uh, we are to fulfil those responsibilities faithfully, give to those institutions what belongs to them. But do it in a way that sets you apart. Because first and foremost, you are a citizen of another kingdom, of God's kingdom. So be distinctive in those roles. As you fulfil those roles and those responsibilities, show your integrity, your compassion, your reliability, your contentment, your love, show that you belong to another kingdom as well. Because your true identity is a citizen of God's kingdom. That's the uniform you wear underneath your outside clothing. I don't know if you remember those ads for the, for the Army Reserve. Uh, it showed a number of ordinary people wearing their work uniforms. A nurse, a tradie, a businessman in a suit. And then they'd sort of open their shirt or, or lift up the corner of their uniform and you'd see underneath the Army Reserve camouflage uniform. Now that's what it's like to be a Christian, isn't it? We wear all sorts of different costumes, different roles, different responsibilities, but underneath our core identity is that we're servants of God. That's the identity that determines all the other priorities and all the other roles we fulfil. It flavours our desires. It colours the way we do everyday things. Everything else we do is to be done within the context of belonging to God and wearing his uniform. Our meals belong to him. Our homes, our families, our jobs, our marriages, our friendships, our holidays. They're all his. All of it is to be done with thankfulness to him in service to him. We could say a lot more, I'm guessing, but that's question one. Who should we serve? We should serve God and we should serve the authorities and give to each what belongs to each. Well, question two comes from the Sadducees. Uh, and what sets them apart from the Pharisees and scribes was that they didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, this life is all there is, they said. And so they've got a different question for Jesus. A different question, but with the same purpose. They're trying to trap Jesus too. Verse 19... Uh, teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children by his brother, for his brother. Now they're quoting an Old Testament law about a man uh, whose brother dies uh, should marry his widow, especially if she didn't have kids. Uh, and it would help to keep the family name uh, when the brother dies and uh, to provide children to provide an heir for the land. And then verse 20, they describe this complicated hypothetical. What if, they say, seven brothers all end up marrying the same poor woman? First one dies, so the second one marries her. Then the second dies and a third marries her and so on. And eventually they all die, including the poor old widow. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? So that's their question. Now, the point they're trying to make is that if there really was an afterlife, then that would be a ridiculous situation. Seven husbands for one wife. And so, therefore, the logic of their argument is that's ridiculous, therefore, there's no afterlife. There's no resurrection. 
But Jesus says they've got it completely wrong, verse 24. Not only do they not know the scriptures, but they don't know the power of God. By limiting human existence to to this plane, to, to this earth only, they're actually limiting God's power to do something beyond this life. And then he proves it from the scriptures. Verse 26. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now, it's a quote from Exodus chapter 3. It's not the most obvious verse, I'd suggest, to to prove uh, life beyond this life. One of the reasons is the Sadducees only accept the first five books of the Old Testament, and so Jesus goes to those... Uh, to come up with his proof text. This is how his argument goes. Uh, In the account of the burning bush, God talks to Moses and it's roughly 400 years since Jacob died, even longer, Abraham and Isaac. But God says, he defines himself, that he's still the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And since that's meaningless if, if Abraham, Isaac and Jacob no longer exist, then they must still be alive. He continues to be the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In other words, life continues beyond the grave. Now what that means is that we live forever because God is eternal. God's power is not limited by a worn out, broken physical body. That doesn't stop God. When God breathes life into someone, he breathes eternity into them. The human soul has a beginning, but it doesn't have an end. We exist beyond this physical life. We were made for something more. You were made for something beyond. Work, buying, selling, retiring, slowing down and stopping. You were made for something beyond that. Our physical bodies have a glorious future. Now, that reality has a huge huge impact on how you live, doesn't it? You were made for something more. It gives an amazing perspective on this life. It gives a perspective on the good things that everyone else chases after. They're not going to last. Money, possessions, investments, careers, success, approval... They all have an expiry date. They're not worth chasing. The human soul lasts. God lasts. Knowing God is what is worth chasing. That perspective helps us deal with bad things as well as good things. Bad things won't last. Sickness, pain, loneliness, rejection, depression, frustrations, even death itself. There's something beyond We will outlive all of that. And so the Christian can have courage and perseverance and hope in the face of those bad things. We were made for something beyond this life. I reckon that is a bigger perspective. That that bigger perspective is one of the best things about being a Christian. What do you love about being a Christian? Okay, eternal life, forgiveness, knowing God... 
but, but I think just knowing that this life that we experience with our senses, there's something more. It's great, isn't it? We were made for something more. Well, the next question, verse 28, comes from one of the scribes, one of the legal experts. He's overheard Jesus answering those first two questions and he's given him good marks. And so he wants to see how he answers an important question of his own. Verse 28, which is the most important command? Over 600 commands in scripture, so many it can confuse and overwhelm you, but what's the number one? What should be my focus? Great question, isn't it? And for once, Jesus answers the way they would expect. Verse 29, he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, a good Jew would pray this every day, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Or another possible translation is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is the one, the only one. That's what God is, the one true God, no substitutes, no challenges, no equals. And because that is true, he continues, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5, what results from that truth, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. Do you see how it flows from who God is? If there is only one God, he has no rivals. He has no one, nobody else deserves his attention, uh, deserves your attention apart from him. He deserves every part of you, devoted to him, with no leftover bits for any other God. He deserves, he, he, he doesn't deserve Sunday but not Saturday nights. He doesn't deserve your hands but not your wallet. He doesn't deserve a public faith but not a private faith. Everything. No ifs, no buts, no excuses, everything. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? He adds another. The teacher gets a good deal. He gets two for the price of one. Verse 31. The second is this. Love your neighbour as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Think about what you would want, says Jesus. Then do that for other people. Do it for your neighbour. Do it for whoever comes across your path. Sometimes it's called the golden rule. And it's funny how people often seem to define Christianity according to that. What's Christianity? Well, it's about doing good to others. But they forget that that's actually only the second most important command. So anything God wants us to do can be summarised, can be summed up by one of those two commands. It's either to do with loving God or loving your neighbour. Of course, as you love your neighbour, you're actually also showing that you love God. So let me ask, are those two rules what guide you each day? Do you base your plans on what is it that will show my complete devotion to God, my complete love for him? How can I love my neighbour today? Or do you say or think to yourself or maybe even subconsciously think of it, probably, do you say something like, how can I make myself feel better today? What can I do for me? 
How can I maximise my comfort or my pleasure today? How can I minimise my pain today? I think we tend to ask those questions, don't we, at the start of a day? Well, let's learn lesson three from the master teacher. What does God demand? To love him more than anything because he deserves it and to love others as much as we love ourselves. And the teacher agrees. Uh, He comes out with a remarkable statement, a, a dangerous, revolutionary statement. Right there in the middle of the temple, he says, verse 32, you've spoken well, teacher, to love God and to love your neighbour is more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. He's just said what Jesus has been saying all along, hasn't he? It's what was wrong with the temple. All of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but there was no love for God or neighbour. There was no justice or holiness. There was no prayer. That's why Jesus turned the temple upside down. A bit further on, towards the end of the chapter, we see an example of how that's true. Verse 38 to 40, Jesus says, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They love to perform their religious duty, not because they're loving God, but because they love the approval of men. They love to wear flowing robes because people will think how amazing they are. And then he turns his attention to loving your neighbour as yourself. He says the the system of temple collections, it's supposed to support widows and orphans. But instead of loving them, it's actually become the means by which things are taken from them. The widows lose their homes. The widows, all of their money is given up so they have nothing to live on into the temple collection. And this teacher of the law has seen right through that hypocrisy in the temple. And Jesus says to him, verse 34, you're not far from the kingdom. You're close. You're on the right track. Which means he's not there yet. He's not there yet because he needs to know the answer to the next question, to Jesus' question. Who is God's king? Who is God's king? The Jewish leaders have asked that question. Uh, Now it's Jesus' turn. It's sort of like, you know, uh, Muhammad Ali at his best where he used to just sort of, you know, take your shot and his, you know, the opponent would be trying to punch him and he'd just be moving out of the way. And then when the opponent had tied himself out, that's when he'd come in and he'd, he'd, he'd start up with his attack. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's Jesus' turn. Sometimes a question is more than a question. Sometimes a question is actually an answer or, or a statement. Like when someone says, how many pairs of shoes do you need? Like that's not, it's a question, but it's also a statement, isn't it? In other words, you've got enough shoes. Or... Are you going to sit in front of the TV all day? Like, that's a question, but it's a statement, isn't it? Get up. Go and do something. (laughs) Now, Jesus actually does that here. It's a question that's a statement. Uh, In the Greek, it actually says in verse 35 that Jesus answered with a question. And Jesus answered them asking... so, So he's actually making a point with his question. And his question, I suggest, is the missing piece of the puzzle. You can get these first three questions right and you can still miss out on God's kingdom. 
You can get them all right and be close, but not be in. Because it comes down to what you do about God's Christ, about his King, what you do about Jesus. The Jews agreed that God was going to send a Messiah, but what would he be like? Well, there were different opinions. They did know he was going to be a son of God. They were expecting a normal human person, uh, sorry, a son of David. Uh, the teachers were expecting a son of David, a normal human person descended from David's line. They weren't wrong, but they weren't completely right. Because Jesus says to them in verse 36, How can King David call his own son my Lord? He's quoting Psalm 110, written by David. And David is talking about his descendant who would come after him. And he calls his descendant my Lord. But the ancestor is supposed to be greater than the offspring. And so Jesus' point, his question that's really an answer, is there must be more to this king, this Messiah, this son of David, than you think. How can David's great-great-great-great-grandson be greater than David himself? Well, from our position on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, we know it's because Jesus is God's son as well as David's son. He's fully God as well as fully human. No wonder David calls him my Lord. God and man, the only one who can bridge the gap between man and God is someone who is both God and man. The perfect man dying in place of sinful man. And it's only as we truly understand who Jesus is, as we trust him, that we can make it into God's kingdom, that we can, can, uh, we can become one of his children. Question four is the key. You can be living out the other three but still not be in God's kingdom because Jesus is the way in as we trust him, as we turn from our sin and, to, and receive the forgiveness that he delivers. It's only as we trust Jesus that we can truly put God first. It's only as we trust Jesus that we can begin to live out the consequences of eternity. It's only as we trust Jesus that we can begin to love God with everything and love our neighbour. Because it's as we trust Jesus that God joins us to him and fills us with his spirit and be changes our heart and begins to transform us. And we can begin to do those other things. Have you done that? Are you in God's kingdom? Are you trusting Jesus? Or are you simply not far from the kingdom. Well, that's the contest. The leaders versus Jesus. Jesus has the final word. He shows us the big questions of life. Will you listen to him? Will you trust him? He's the king who welcomes people into his kingdom, who answers our big questions, who introduces them, introduces people to life, to God and how we can please him. Will you listen? Will you do what he says? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to see Jesus, to trust him, that we might live the life, the perspective that you would have us live for your honour and glory. Amen.